Well, I went back and checked, and uh, we left off our studies in 1 Samuel back on November 21st. That was the last time we were in the book, so it's been a couple months. We took that break for the Advent season, and then, and then uh, Jason and Josh and Patrick freed for us, and now we're, we're back to it. And, uh, and as we jump back in, it'll repay us to just have a quick reminder of where things are at in the book. Um, so, so first off, uh, we want to remember that when we study 1 Samuel, we're set down historically during the time of the judges in Israel's history. Uh, so just remember the, the flow of things here. Israel's been rescued from Egypt. They've been led by Moses. Uh, they wandered around in the desert. And then under the leadership of Joshua, they'd entered, entered this land that God promised to them. They'd entered the land of Canaan. Uh, but then after Joshua died, things weren't so good. Uh, after Joshua died, it was the time when, when various judges were sent by God to rule and rescue Israel. But during that time of judges, we had this historic low point for the people of God and that they weren't obeying the Lord. And instead, we have that refrain that runs through the book of Judges uh, where we're told that there was no king in the land and the people did what was right in their own eyes. So it's, it's uh, akin to a, to a contemporary uh, version of something like everyone was just living out their own truth. That's what was going on in Israel during this time. They had no regard for the Lord, and they just did uh, whatever they wanted to do, which, of course, uh, was a continual disaster for them. And as we get into 1 Samuel, we see the people's disregard for God is something that's not uh, just reflected in general among the people of the land, but it's actually something that's reflected uh, in, the, in the highest levels in that the priesthood itself is corrupted. Uh, so we have this in the first chapters where Samuel uh, is, is introduced to us, but really before we get into meeting Samuel, we meet Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, so Eli is the priest at Shiloh, which is the center of, of Israelite worship during that time. Later on, it would become Jerusalem. Now it's Shiloh, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Eli is the head priest there, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're priests as well. And instead of overseeing worship as they ought, Hophni and Phinehas are stealing uh, from the sacrifices that the people bring, and they're engaged in uh, all kinds of sexual immorality as well. And, and along with that, instead of stopping them, Eli, the dad, he is passive. He lets these things go. In fact, uh, he even gets fat off their own ill-gotten gains. Uh, so, so we have this total corruption of the priesthood. Th things aren't looking good as we get into the book of Samuel. Uh, but in that situation of extreme offense against God, uh, not all hope is lost because the book of Samuel starts with this lady named Hannah. And ultimately, Hannah, who is a righteous lady, uh, for, from out of her own context of pain, she prays to the Lord for a son, and the Lord grants her request. The boy Samuel is born. And as we saw last time in chapter 3, Samuel as a young boy is ultimately called by God to be this prophet to Israel. Uh, which is important because during this time we're also told that, that the Word of God is, is absent from the land. The people of God have rejected what God says, and so as a result, as part of God's judgment on the people during this time, the, the Lord uh, wasn't speaking to them. There were the occasional prophetic uh, interactions, but for the most part, the Word of God uh, was absent from them. Uh, there wasn't much word, word from God during this time, and, and we see how things are only going from bad to worse, except that as chapter 3 wraps up, and uh, with actually the beginning of chapter 4, Samuel is called as a prophet. And as Samuel's called as a prophet, we see that through him, God's word is going to come to all Israel. So there's hope there at the end of chapter 3. And, and that's where we left things off last time. The people of Israel are far from God in many notable ways, uh, but God's not done with them. That, that gets us up to where we are now in chapter 4. 
And in chapter 4, we start this next main uh, narrative unit of the book, which runs from our reading this morning through chapter 7. And in this section, it's interesting to notice that uh, considering all the space that's already been given to Samuel's story in the first three chapters, now for the next three chapters, Samuel is uh, completely absent. We don't hear about Samuel again until chapter 7. And that's because we find uh, in this section of narrative a kind of instructional parenthesis, if we can call it that. So, so beginning in chapter 4, we have a series of events that, that sit between Samuel's call to ministry in chapter 3 and the exercise of his public ministry, uh, which we'll get into in chapter 7. Uh, and, and in these events, these, these parentheses events of our, our middle chapters here, the narrative uh, takes us through, uh, the, the narrator actually takes the time to bring us through significant truths about who God is and how He acts toward His people. Uh, and, and this is important for us to see. We're, we're really in a, in a unique spot in Israel's history as God's people as we approach these chapters because we find ourselves between the time when judges ruled in Israel, now moving forward to a time of Israel being established as a monarchy. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel's asking for a king. They're going to get a king. Um, so, so, so things are going to be changing significantly for, for Israel. We're between the time of the judges and these tribal elders, and, and, and very soon this, this king, this monarchy, which is going to be set up for the people. So there's going to be a huge shift in Israel's structure as a people and their structure as a nation. Uh, but just before that big change is reported to us in chapter 8, uh, chapters 4 to 7 give us a special and an even heightened lesson in who God is and how He acts toward His people. So these chapters serve as a kind of, of theological uh, palate cleanser, showing us not only what's true about Israel and their sin at the moment, but also what's true about God and how He acts toward Israel in His power and grace and, and preserving kindness that He extends to them even in their sin. Uh, so, so as we come to work our way through this next section of 1 Samuel, it's as if the narrator is saying to us, uh, big changes are coming for, for Israel. We need to know that. But before we work through the significance of those big changes, we need to be renewed in our understanding of who God is and how He acts towards those who are His own. And we can appreciate that because we know what it's like to live on the edge of, we know what it's like to live in the midst of very changing times. When times are changing, it can leave us with our heads spinning. We know this all too well just given the last couple of years of our own experience. But if there's one thing that happens during times of change, it's that we can very easily be distracted from the transcendent. When things are spinning all around us, we can forget who God is and what He's really like. It's very easy for us to do just given all, all that can be taking place. In the midst of changing times, we can be caught up in, in how the world around us is working and all the different things going on in our lives, and we can forget uh, the nature and character of God. We can forget who He is and how He works. And so as we embark on, on our studies over these next few chapters, this narrative helps uh, correct that tendency. Israel is about to have big changes. We ourselves, we know what it's like to live with big changes even in our contemporary context. These are, these are change-filled days. And when we face changing times in a unique way, we need to be reminded of the unchanging truth of what it looks like to know God and follow Him. We need to be reminded in the of the unchanging truth of what God is like and how He acts uh, toward His people. And this section of, of Samuel begins to help us along those lines. Uh, actually, it begins to help us in a very honest way. 
And that as we get into chapter 4, we're renewed in our knowledge of God and who He is and what it means to follow Him and know Him. But, but we start in a very blunt place with that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where basically the narrative is answering the question, what happens when the people of God persist in sin? What ultimately is going to happen to the people of God when they persist in sin? Which is a weighty question, and it's a timely question as we get to this point in the narrative, because the sin has just been happening so much all up, all, all, all up until this point. It's, it's overwhelming, the chaos is there. We'll see it even more in the context of the, of the narrative today. Uh, what happens when the people of God persist in sin? And while that might not seem like a very uplifting question to ask, we know that it's a critical question for Israel to be able to answer because of their own current circumstances. And we know how critical this question is for us to be able to answer as well. What happens when we persist in sin? What happens when we go against God's way? We can find ourselves going on and on in ways that are contrary to what God has called us to do. We understand that's true in our own hearts. And so this is one of the most basic and important questions we can ever ask if we're really going to know God and if we're going to follow Him. What happens when I find myself time and time again going in ways that are purposefully and continuously uh, contrary to God. What happens when I get tangled up in those things that God has directly called me to avoid? What happens when I get uh, tangled up in not doing those things that God has called me to engage in? We need to be able to answer those questions because at first pass, uh, any number of answers to that question can come to mind if our minds aren't trained by the Scriptures. We, we, can, we can reach many conclusions. What happens when I continue in sin? Well, well, we could reach the conclusion that maybe God is just done with me. Here I am struggling in my sin. It seems to tangle me up. I'm wandering off in these ways. Maybe I'm not cut out for this Christian life at all. And so we can reach the conclusion, well, maybe, maybe we're done with this. Maybe I should be done with this. The, the Christian life seemed like something I was engaged in, but I, I can't seem to get my act together. So maybe this isn't for me at all. We can reach that kind of conclusion if we're not careful. On the other side, if we find ourselves continuing in sin, we can, we can also uh, find ourselves thinking maybe, maybe God doesn't really care all that much about this sin that I'm committing. After all, it's God's job to forgive anyway, so I'm just going to go on and do it. It's really not that big of a deal. I'll engage in these ways that I want to engage in, and we'll just, we'll just go forward from there. I don't really need to worry about it. We can reach all kinds of different conclusions, different answers to this question if we're just left to think about this ourselves. However, we're not left to think about it for ourselves. We're left with the Scriptures, which tell us very clearly in many different ways how God responds to us when we find ourselves in persistent contrariness toward Him. And so, if you have an eye on the text, we're going to work through three answers that this passage gives to our question, what happens to the people of God when they persist in sin. Three different answers we have in this passage. The first one we find in verses 1 to 11 uh, where the narrative makes it very clear that when we persist in sin, things go from bad to worse. When we persist in sin, things go from bad to worse. Uh, so if you look at verses 1 to 11, we, we can notice how the sinful condition of God's people is highlighted. We'll just pick out two, two main ways that it's highlighted here in this passage. Um, first of all, right away, there's indicators of, of God's, people, uh, God's people's uh, historical disregard for what God has said. And that's there simply because the present threat of the Philistine, uh, the Philistines is recorded there for us. In, in, in these verses, we read that a battle is brewing now between the Israelites and the Philistines. And the very fact that this can be happening reflects Israel's historical sin. 
Because when the people of Israel entered Canaan, God told them to wipe out the pagan people of the land. And right at the top of that list, you can read about it in Joshua chapter 13, right at the top of the list was the Philistines. And guess what? Israel didn't do what God said. They didn't defeat the people of the land, and instead, like chapter 7 of 1 Samuel will remind us when we get there, instead of defeating the people of the land, the Israelites actually started worshiping their false gods instead. It's a total disaster. So, so historical sin is reflected in the life of Israel right at the outset here just because the Philistines are trouble. Israel didn't obey God and deal with them. There, there they are. The fact that they're present reflects Israel's historical sin, which is just a good reminder to us that historical sins that, that, we, that we disregard and don't deal with, they don't just go away without consequences. Historical disobedience to God has a way of bringing about very present and, and contemporary trouble. Sin is never a, a siloed kind of thing. And, and we, know, we know that. To, to determine to go against God in one area or at one time, like the writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear, sin has this tangly effect. It constricts. It keeps constricting. And ultimately, that we can find ourselves suffocating because of the damage of sin long down, long down the line. So, so Israel's historical sins, they continue to simmer with, with harmful effect as now these Philistines are arrayed in battle against them. That this, is, this is a problem. So sin is evident just historically here in Israel's life. And then the sinful condition of Israel is shown here in a second way, this time not, not in a historical disregard for what God says, but also in a willingness, we can put it, to, to presume upon God, that they have this willingness to manipulate God. And then we see this uh, as, as the narrative unfolds. If you just look at verse 2, um, Israel goes to battle against the Philistines. And we're told in verse 2, Israel is, is struck down. So 4,000 men die on the battlefield. And at first it seems like this might be uh, a wake-up call for the elders of Israel. Because in verse 3, the leaders ask, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And that's actually a really good question. That the leaders of Israel seem extremely aware that it's not just a, a bad day in battle that's reflected in their defeat, uh, but, but actually the Lord fought against them. And that's a huge problem, especially when you think about passages like Deuteronomy 28, where Moses tells the people of Israel uh, that if they disobey God in the land of promise... One of the things that will happen is that the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. That's Deuteronomy 28, 25, word for word. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So the elders ask the question, why did the Lord cause us to be defeated before our enemies today? It's a good question. And the answer is because the people of Israel are continually sinning against the Lord in the land He promised them. Not only did they not deal with the Philistines like they were supposed to historically, but we know just as so far in our studies that, that we've got this corrupt priesthood happening in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They're worshiping idols. All this stuff is going on. Israel is disregarding God, and as a result, they are incurring the curses of God instead of His blessings in the land. They're defeated in battle, just like God said would happen. And the elders ask the right question. They know God is behind the defeat. The trouble is, instead of soft-hearted, repentant reflection on what's happened, the leaders of Israel only sin further. They, they presume upon God. They, they attempt to manipulate Him. Now, the elders engage in what one commentator refers to in this section as lucky rabbit foot theology. So, so the Lord's defeated us in battle. What shall we do? Well, end of verse 3, let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant to battle with us. All right, let's, let's get that good luck charm. 
So someone go get Hophni and Phinehas to bring down the ark. Now, uh, we can have a brief reminder of the significance of the Ark of the Covenant right here because it's going to be featured all through uh, these next few chapters. Um, the, ark, the Ark was constructed, you remember, under the ministry and oversight of Moses. And on the top of the Ark was the mercy seat uh, where two angelic-type creatures are on either side. But that, that mercy seat represented the presence of God among His people. And then inside the Ark were three important objects, technically four, but three connected objects. The first uh, was the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which spoke to the fact that, that God reveals Himself to His people. Uh, the second object in the ark was uh, Aaron's budding staff. You can read about that in Numbers, Numbers uh, chapter 17 and 18. But that reflects the fact that the Lord appoints His, His anointed leader for the people. And then also uh, inside the ark, there's a jar of manna from the wilderness which communicated God's miraculous provision for His people. So, so this just helps us understand the place of the ark's, ark's significance among Israel and what it represented. The ark, which was now kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle there at Shiloh, it was uniquely uh, valuable in the center of Israelite worship because it represented God's presence among His people, just as you think about what, what all those objects re reflected. So he's, he's enthroned with them in mercy. That's the mercy seat that's right there. He was their miraculous provider. He gave them the manna. He's the one who appoints leadership for them. There's Aaron's budded rod. And, and, then, and then He speaks to them. This is the God who reveals His Word to them with the commandments that are there. So, so the ark is this extremely unique symbol of God's presence among His people. And when the Lord called the people to go out with the ark, the Lord proved his presence and power with them every time. When we think of the ark going ahead of the people as they marched around Jericho, it was the reflection of God's holy and victorious presence with his people. God fought for them. And the walls, remember the, the kids' song, if you do, the walls came tumbling down in Joshua chapter 6. So, so with the significance of the ark in mind, think about what's going on here. The elders understand that the Lord has defeated them in battle. And instead of, of really reflecting a knowledge of God and their need to repent of sin, instead, we have this lucky rabbit foot theology. That they need some magic to get the Lord back on their side, so what do we do? Well, let's go get the ark. And they get the ark, and what happens? Well, first of all, Israel gets really excited in verse 5. Verse 5, they're yelling when Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark into their war camp. In fact, the same word, which isn't an often occurring word, the same word is used to describe the people shouting with excitement here in verse 5 that's used in Joshua chapter 6 to describe the great shout that the people gave before the Jericho walls came, came falling down. So there's a, we're meant to see a connection there. Here the people are shouting like that, which has the effect of totally freaking out the Philistines in that section beginning in verse 6. But, but the Philistines, even though they're, they're freaked out and their theology is all messed up, they, they do man up like they're called to do in, in verse 9. Uh, so even though they're really worried about the apparent presence of the Israelite God or gods, they've got this plurality in their head, they don't, they don't quite get it, except they know uh, that the, the shout has gone up, they feel themselves to be in trouble. However, they get their act together, the Philistines do, and they fight anyway. So battle number two uh, rages there in the text. And what happens? in battle number two? Was it, was it a repeat of the battle of Jericho where the ark led and the Lord fought for His people and there was this total victory uh, for Israel? Is that what happens here? No, the, the exact opposite takes place. Israel isn't victorious. Instead, they're even more devastated in this second battle with the Philistines than they were in the first battle in verse 2. You just look at that, verses 10 and 11. It's not uh, 4,000 soldiers dead this time. Now it's 30,000 
Israelite soldiers dead. And it's not just that, but, but the ark, so the very representation of the Lord's presence and power among His people, the ark is now captured, it's now in the possession of the Philistines themselves. And with that, two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they're killed too. So, so it's this totally disastrous defeat. And, and we put all that together, and, and it's not just the, the ongoing presence of the Philistines that demonstrate how Israel had been historically sinful. It's not just that they didn't obey when they entered the land, defeat the nations, and so on. But also very currently, we see that in the midst of battle, God fights against Israel, and instead of repenting like they ought, they make an attempt to manipulate God. Rather, they go get the ark thinking they can treat the Lord as a kind of good luck charm. It's this presumptive sin of thinking the God of the universe can be exploited to act when and where and how we want Him to act. And this is where uh, the commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it like this. He says, Israel had, had functionally replaced the words, pra- the words of praise with words of presumption. He says, they exchanged thou art worthy for thou art useful. which repays a whole sermon worth of thinking if we had the time, which we don't. But, but this was total devastation. So, so we have our question, what happens when we persist in sin? And the first answer to that question from the, from the text right here is things only go from bad to worse, which is exactly what happened here. From, from 4,000 soldiers dead in verse 2 to now 30,000 soldiers dead, two priests in the ark is, is captured and carried off in verse 11. What happens when we persist in sin? Things go from bad to worse, ultimately and always. And just as we reflect on, on what it's like to know God and to follow Him and to even be renewed in the truth of who He is, we, we need to be able to have this firmly fixed in our hearts. This is important, not because it's fun to think about, but because we recognize how we can be prone to forget, just like the Israelite leaders are prone to forget here. We can be prone to think that sin is no big deal, and if we ever really need God's help, we can access Him just like a good luck charm. But like we see here, it's disastrous to think in those ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes the commentary on this in Galatians chapter 6 when he says, don't be deceived. In other words, we can be thinking wrongly about this. There's a tendency. Don't be deceived. What does he say? God is not mocked. What we sow, we will reap. So what happens when we persist in sin? Well, things go from bad to worse. And we can can just let this check our hearts. We can check our hearts corporately as God's people. We can check our hearts individually. Is there things I'm walking in? Is there sin I'm ignoring? Are there things I'm I'm going along in that seem like no big deal that I need to um, take to gospel task in my life on my knees before God with a Christian brother and sister and say, these things need to stop. They're going and they need to stop. I'm not taking this as seriously as I ought. It's just a good reminder. Do I see God as a genie in a bottle to rub on the days I need Him? Or do I see Him as a master of the universe who, who calls me to the good way of obedience and life? What, what happens when I persist in sin? It doesn't go well. Things go from bad to worse. So that's first. But that's not all that happens here. Secondly, we can also notice that when we persist in sin, the Lord's purposes still stand. And we need to see this as well from this passage. So this is really what plays out in verses 12 to 22, and we won't take the time with all the details, but the the main thrust of these verses is plain. So if you just keep an eye on those verses, 12 to 22, uh, Israel is defeated in battle, and when a messenger comes back to report uh, this defeat, he's in this posture of mourning, Um, Eli the priest is waiting, and it's to Eli's credit that he doesn't respond so dramatically to the news of his boy's death. They, they were wicked men after all. But when he hears that the ark is captured in verse 18, he falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. 
And there's even a little comment in verse 13, or verse 18 that, that Eli was heavy. Uh, Eli, we know from earlier chapters, got overweight by the profane thefts of his sons, of the meals that were brought to the, to the sacrificial places there at Shiloh. So, so there's deep irony in this and then even other things that we, we might talk about in, in future uh, studies. But, but Eli's, he, he falls to his death. Eli dies. And then, and then in verses 19 to 22, we have this extremely sad story about Eli's daughter-in-law. So she's married uh, to his son Phineas, and she's pregnant when she hears everything that's happened. Um, she, she goes into this premature labor, and ultimately she dies. So there's all this death taking place. Um, but in all this death, there's something that, that we can't miss. And it's the fact that, that what God said would happen through his prophet back in chapter 2, and then what was actually reiterated by God through Samuel in chapter 3, is, is that God was bringing Eli's house to an end. You remember that? Eli is this wicked priest with wicked sons, and ultimately their entire family line, God says, which we actually see come to a final conclusion later in the book of Kings, the entire family line of Eli is done because God is judging them for their willing indulgences of sin as priests thereover. God said He would do this. And, and this is a heavy word as well, but at the same time, there's something very hopeful in it because here we have one of those instances where just about every single thing we read that's going on, it's all sin. In, in other words, in this chapter, in just about every way, it seems like everything is contrary to God. Historically, the people didn't deal with the Philistines. Presently, the elders are presuming upon God. The priests are violating sacrifices and cheating on their wives. They're stealing from the offerings of, of God from the people. Eli's fulfilled none of his fatherly or leadership duties and dealt with his sons. And to top it off, they've now lost 30,000 plus soldiers. And, and, and the central element of Israelite worship, the ark, representing the presence of God itself, has been captured and taken out of the land. At every turn, it seems like things are, 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 are abysmal, this total and hopeless failure, except that in the midst of all the nasty sin against God, in this great big uh, cesspool of persistent disaster, what's happening? Well, God's Word still stands. What He said would happen to Eli and his family is happening exactly like he said it would back in chapter 2. Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. That's what God said. Eli's line is going to start to come to an end. And in all this chaos, that is exactly what happens. So, so what happens when we persist in sin? Well, things go from bad to worse. But at the same time, let there be no doubt about the fact that God's Word continues to stand. There's no undoing His purposes. What he says will come to pass, whether good or ill, it will come to pass, and no disaster of humanity or anything else can change that, which increases our righteous trembling before him, no doubt, but it also gives us great cause for rest. As Spurgeon put it, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head. When we persist in sin, things can get so twisted and disastrous for us, and when we persist in sin, Nothing thwarts what God has purposed to take place. In fact, in a case such as this, it's right in the middle of this huge calamity that he actually pr proves his word true. We don't serve a God who's, who's wringing his hands hoping that the decisions people make will line up with his best laid plans. No, God's plans stand, God's word stands. Job confesses this, doesn't he? By the end of Job, he says, I know that you can do all things and no purposes of yours can be thwarted. So, so it's possible for us to think that because of our sin, 
God's purposes for our lives or for the lives of those, of those around us, whatever it may be, have been messed up. We've ruined God's plans. And this passage is a dark example, but it's a good example. Our sin is deadly, our sin is damaging, but our sin is never almighty. The Lord is almighty, and nothing can undo what He's determined to do according to His holy, righteous, pure, and good will. And we can just take that as an extraordinary encouragement. God's good purposes always stand. So what happens when we persist in sin? Things go from bad to worse, but even in that, the Lord's purposes still stand. And then finally, what happens when we persist in sin? Well, we have one more thing, which is maybe the most critical thing of all in this passage. What we also need to see is that the Lord's grace exceedingly abounds. It exceedingly abounds. When we persist in sin, the Lord's grace exceedingly abounds. Just see how this plays out here. This is, this is important to see. It's interesting to note that in this whole passage, there's actually only one righteous person, and that person is the unnamed wife of Phineas. And we could do a whole other study during the time of the judges, how many righteous ladies are present during this time. We've already met uh, the righteous Hannah earlier in this passage, Ruth, who's a contemporary. We have a whole book about Ruth. Here, here in this whole passage, we have this unnamed wife of Phineas, and what a life she must have had to leave. Her husband was a horrible person. Her father-in-law was a passive disaster of a leader, and her final moments of life were spent in the agony of childbirth. But you notice the posture of her heart. What's really the most troubling thing to her in all this? What is the thing that's reigning supreme as concern in her heart? She's obviously upset about the death of Phineas and Eli. She talks about that. But she doesn't name her boy Eli after Grandpa. And she certainly doesn't name him Phineas Jr. She names him Ichabod, which, which, which translates something like, where is the glory? And then, and then when she speaks about her agony, she says again, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Her true angst was not around the death and battle defeat. Her true angst was the sorrow over the capture of the ark of the covenant, that symbol of the presence and glory of God among His people. And again, while this is... This is uh, an extremely sad end to things, there's actually something quite amazing here. And we can understand it like this. All through this chapter, there are a number of different references to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and the curse God promises on His people if they disobey Him in the land of Canaan. For example, you remember Deuteronomy 28 where God said He's going to defeat them in battle. In this chapter, the elders recognize God has defeated us in battle. Deuteronomy 28 is happening to us in this chapter. And then also, we have two times in Deuteronomy 28 where there's a unique word that references affliction or plagues that God's going to send to the people if they rebel against Him. And interestingly, when Israel is defeated, and it's referenced there in verse 10, that same word for plague is used, which is actually translated slaughter in our English Bible, but it's that Deuteronomy 28 plague word. This is happening to them. So, so God fought against Israel. God afflicted Israel here with the, the plague of defeat. All these things He's promised to do in Deuteronomy 28 is happening to them. And here's what's amazing. The climactic curse of Deuteronomy 28 is the curse of exile. If the people don't have regard for God, He won't just fight against them. He won't just afflict them in Canaan, but He'll exile them from the land. And while we know that comes later on in history... What's profound right here is that when the daughter-in-law of, of Eli speaks about the ark of God, which is the presence of God among His people, remember, this is the presence and glory of God among His people, when she speaks about the ark and the glory departing from Israel, 
That word isn't departed like we have in our English Bible. That word is exile. Literally, it reads, the glory has exiled itself from Israel. That's verse 22. So, so you just, just put this together. God in His mercy, while judging Israel in their sin, all very Deuteronomy 28-ish, in the last turn, God effectively takes the climactic curse of exile to Himself in this chapter. He fought against Israel, He afflicted them, but ultimately He took the climactic curse for them. The real fact isn't that the Philistines were so strong they captured the ark. The real truth is that God exiled Himself. This is a truth that's actually reflected on in Psalm 78. The psalmist recounts this incident in Psalm 78. Let me just read you verses 60 and 61 of that psalm. Psalmist says this, The Lord abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh, the tent where He resided among mankind. He gave up His strength to captivity. Hear that exile language? He gave up His strength to captivity and His splendor to the hand of a foe. The Lord did that. What happens when we persist in sin? Well, things go from bad to worse, and the Lord's purposes still stand. But also, and finally, we're brought to see that the Lord who calls us His own is the one who takes the climactic punishment that we deserve. The glory exiled itself from Israel. Even when His people are hard-hearted, presuming upon God like a good luck charm, God's steadfast love so extends that He takes the climax of the curse Himself. And while exile would ultimately happen for the Israelites, we're given a very important picture here just of how God ultimately works. How gloriously does this prepare us to recognize and embrace the cross of Jesus Christ? This is how God works in abounding grace. Jesus took our ultimate curse. He took the exile from life to death due us because of our sin. Jesus took that curse upon Himself and in so doing proved that God's love for us is not based on our good performance, but that God's love for us is based on His divine prerogative. He will be gracious and extend mercy to us, twisted up in sin though we may even very currently be. So, so, so I just wonder today, if, if you felt like sin, whether historical sin or present sin, I wonder if you felt like your sin is enough to keep you from receiving the kindness of God. The answer from this passage is it is absolutely not. Nothing can separate us from His love. He is the curse-taking, sin-paying God who is sorrowful and even angry over our sin. And He will visit us with His chastisements like a good father when we sin. He will do that, but ultimately... He will be the one to bear the climactic penalty for our sin, and in that is glorious relief. And in that is the hope that we need. In that, I can find rest amid all the dark clouds and and disasters of wrong done, because in that I begin to comprehend the cross. The glory exiled itself for you and for me. And just like we'll discover as we keep working our way through these chapters, in, in, the, in fact, you can read them for homework. In the, ex, in the exiled glory of God, God will then return to prove Himself strong and lead His people in ultimate victory. So, so we thank God for His Word, which reminds us of these truths. This is the God of abounding grace, despite the fact that His people can be so lost and twisted up in sin. In Him we have the One who bears our penalty and brings us hope, not based on who we are, but based on what He is willing to do on our behalf. This is who Jesus Christ is, and this is why we have hope that transcends our immediate circumstances and our failings. This is why we have the gospel. 
And in the beginning of this next section of 1 Samuel, we have that worked out for us in a very real and plain way. This is the character of God. And so we're thankful uh, for His Word that reminds us of these things. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do pray we'd be renewed in this hope, and we thank You that we're not left to ourselves, and we're not left to earn our, our way into Your favor, but You're the God who extends favor when we don't deserve it. And we recognize that personally, we recognize it from the Scriptures, and we rejoice in that uh, climactically through the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we'd be renewed in this this morning, lifted up, and ultimately turned toward uh, worship of the King who gave all uh, to set us free. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.